The scripture reading this morning is Romans 5, verses 7 through 13, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and 12 through 14. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. What then are we to say? Should we continue to sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present, present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and, from, and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. May God add the blessings to his word. This is uh, Mardi Gras week. And uh, as Laurie pointed out, it, uh, Mardi Gras is French for Fat Tuesday. And uh, it's a time of, of uh, debauchery and engaging in all kinds of uh, craziness. But really it's a time of just celebrating and having fun and enjoying yourself. It was called Fat Tuesday because you would... Uh, people would eat sumptuously all those things that you were going to give up over Lent, right? <laughs> so uh, it was kind of a preparation for a time of Lent. And, um, you know, it's also a time of kind of engaging a lot of things that people spend all of Lent repenting for. And uh, uh, maybe, you know, there's a, there's a connection there somehow. But as we approach this uh, this party this morning, I thought, you know, it's probably a good time to talk about uh, sin a little bit, because it's often said around here that we don't talk about sin enough these days, right? Uh, some of you have said this to me, we don't talk about sin enough, and quite frankly, I don't necessarily agree with this, it's not entirely true. If you don't think I'm talking about sin every time I step into this pulpit, I would say that you're not listening very closely at the things I'm saying. <laughs> but
But I think what people most often think of when they come to me and they say, Pastor Curtis, we need to talk about sin some more, is that they would like me to talk about everyone's personal piety and uh, particularly the lack of it and preferably directed at some other person. And usually it's someone they have in mind that they would like me to talk to uh, from the pulpit about those things. In other words, they would like me to call out certain behaviors and rail on it a little bit. Maybe throw some guilt in there. Maybe talk about the threat of hell. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a fairly recent thing. It was in, uh, in um, July 8th, 1741. Jonathan Edwards stepped into the pulpit in the little frontier town of Enfield, Connecticut, and he preached a, a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And Jonathan Edwards is the epitome, or this particular sermon is the epitome of what they, people think of when they think of the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening that, that came to us. And it began all of that hellfire and brimstone stuff. And, and this sermon that uh, was preached by Jonathan Edwards kind of epitomizes all of that. He says this, There is nothing that keeps the wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. I'm sure he said it just like that too. And, and he goes through this whole description of how close God is to just casting us all into hell. And then at the end, he extends this invitation. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath that is to come. And it was said of that day that he scared the hell out of them. And they, people there said that Edwards was interrupted many, many times with moans and people were crying and the congregation kept yelling out, How could we be saved? How could we be saved? Well, I'm not here to do that, really. Uh, and of course, this fear of hell is nothing new. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not really a hellfire and brimstone kind of guy. Uh, but it's nothing new. People have been talking about and utilizing this fear of hell for a long time. Long before Edwards, the early church began to focus on the fallen state of humanity and our propensity towards sin. And they articulated this in what are called the seven deadly sins or the seven capital uh, vices or the cardinal sins. And uh, as pointed out uh, uh, earlier that they... They speak not to sins that are going to ultimately be unforgiven, but they point to those sins that, uh, that really give birth to all other sins. It's kind of their, they're the first points of sinfulness in the minds of the early Christians. And by the 14th century, these sins became an obsession, and it was a common motif in all the art and the literature at that time. The first one, of course, is wrath. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, 26-27, Be angry, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. So this is about, this is about getting angry and doing it in such a sinful way that gives birth to so many of the other sins in our life, maybe violence and even murder and things like that. The next one is greed. Luke 12:15 says this, and he said to them, "Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life 
does not consist of the abundance of possessions. And the real problem with greed is that it means that someone has to go without. Now this one I talk about a lot. That when the more one group has of something, the less some other group has of something. And sometimes we here in America, we experience comfort and, and ease of life and a particular lifestyle at the expense of some other group in the world or even some other group in our own community. That's greed. And it is an important thing to talk about. Sloth. Galatians 6, 4 through 5 says, All must test their own work, then that work, rather than their neighbor's work, will become a cause for pride, for all must carry their own loads. I try to make this case at home a lot with my children, and, uh, you know, it, it often falls on dead ears. But many of us have been given over to, to laziness and not wanting to, uh, you know, get in and get our hands dirty and get going on things. Pride is the next one. Proverbs 21-24 says, The proud, haughty person named Scoffer acts with arrogant pride. So pride is this, uh, this incredible self-obsession with how wonderful you are. Lust, Matthew 5-27-28 says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, of course, lust gives birth to a lot of other sins that in order to keep it PG-13, we're not going to get into here. Uh, envy. Exodus twenty seventeen says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Oh, jealousy has caused a lot of problems in this world. Gluttony. Now this is the one I'm hitting a little, you know, there, everyone's upstairs preparing this big crazy meal up here and I'm going to talk about gluttony here for a second. Ezekiel 16.49 says, this was the guilt, did you know this, that, that this was one of the things that Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah were accused of, is gluttony. It says this, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of bread, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. That's what, uh, in addition to all the health issues, it's, it's gluttony denies things to the poor. And for that, Sodom and Gomorrah were, uh, it was one of the lists of their own sins there. We thought it was all about something else, but... You know, it comes up with these other things. The problem with all of this, with, so here I've just listed out all of these sins and I've even given you biblical justification, justification for all those things. And the problem is that when I start enumerating sins, many people begin to look at it and they think, well, as long as I'm not doing these things, I'm fine, right? And the other problem with this is that when I start enumerating sins, when I start talking about sloth, for example... Those of you who work really hard start to look around and you start to point fingers at people you think are lazy. And it's just too easy to do that. And so I get a little nervous whenever... It, this, is, this is maybe why we don't kind of come right out and uh, start talking about it. And then we start to look for... And when I start to talk about them, we think, as long as I'm not doing those, I'm fine. And we start to look for loopholes and rationales for why what we do doesn't really constitute that particular sin, right? Start to look for ways we can justify our own behavior. Oh, I only get angry when it's called for, right? And those kinds of things. 
And the other problem is that people begin to obsess about their own sinfulness. This is probably what happens most often. This is certainly what Jonathan Edwards was going for. People start to obsess about their own sinfulness and they forget to actually live out the gospel. Living out the kingdom of God is messy business. And if we are so concerned about our own purity and piety, we may start to close ourselves off from the hurt and broken world that Jesus has called on us to transform and to bring the good news to. It sounds a lot like the Pharisees that Jesus raked over the coals every chance he got. It's exactly what they did. They closed themselves off and they sat back and they pointed fingers at everybody else. You all should be more pious like me and be more like me and, and be holy and then left it at that. Well, that's not very convincing. This is what Martin Luther was talking about when he encouraged his followers to sin boldly. I know some of you thought that meant something else. But what it means is, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But get out there and get your hands dirty. Because changing the world and declaring the good news and living out the kingdom of God is messy business. And sometimes we're going to slip and fall. Particularly if we're focused on Jesus and not focused on our own personal piety and how good we look to everybody else. Another reality is that, quite frankly, some of this stuff is relative to the situation. What makes any particular activity sinful really depends on context and the individual, doesn't it? When we're talking about individual sin. For example, anger in and of itself is not an issue necessarily. In fact, the text I read earlier says, be angry, but don't sin in it, right? So there must be righteous anger, right? In fact, Jesus exhibited a little bit of righteous anger. And in fact, sometimes I think we're not angry enough, amen. Sometimes I don't think we get our hackles up enough about the, the, how, how big a contrast the world we live in is with the kingdom of God. But... When the anger gets twisted and it becomes something that controls us instead of the other way around, or if we use it to control other people, well then that is an issue. It can lead to hurting people's feelings and making people feel uncomfortable or even at its worst, violent outlashes. In fact, all of these sins, quite frankly, they have kind of a good side to them. But they, when they get twisted... And they get turned around and they get used in ways that are not healthy or helpful. That's when they become what we would call sin. For example, you know, appreciation of one's self-worth is a good thing. It's an important thing. But when it becomes arrogance, then it is an unhealthy sense of oneself. One must eat. And certainly there's nothing wrong with eating well. But when food becomes our own self-medication, or if we eat in ways that lead to health issues, well, that becomes problematic, doesn't it? Or what I think is more to the point that Jesus would get to is if we eat without regard for how our eating affects others' ability to eat, well, then you're talking about a big issue. You're talking about denying those people that God loves, their ability to eat. And that's something that we as a culture really ought to examine even more than our own 
you know, weight gain or weight loss. So you can see that sin is often taking something that is meant to be good and healthy and wholesome and twisting it to become something that it's not. And something not really healthy for your mind, your body, or your spirit, or for the good of all human community. In fact, the word sin itself really is not so ominous a word as Jonathan Edwards would like us to believe. The word literally, it's an archery term in the ancient world, and it literally means you've missed the mark. You've missed the bullseye. You've, you've hit off to the side somewhere, and you've, you haven't hit the thing you were aiming for. Well, now that doesn't sound so ominous, does it? It means you're off a little bit, and you need to adjust your aim so that you can hit the mark. I think finally, the other problem with focusing on our on articulating what is a sin and what isn't a sin is I think it misses the point. I don't know how helpful it is to have these terms of of sins and virtues or or even good or good and bad sometimes is not a very helpful term, particularly when you're talking about people. You know, I, it's it's pretty bad when we start labeling people as bad, as if their very core is useless. And, you know, and it's not that I don't think there's evil in the world. I, I really do. But I think Jesus would tell us that He looks into the heart of all humanity and He probably finds good and evil in each and every one of us. And if the kingdom of God were the way it should be, there would be room for all of us to grow into our goodness. Amen. And become that person that God created us to be. And this is exactly what I think Paul is talking about in this very long and convoluted text we chose today when we read it today. For Paul, in Christ, we are no longer left to dwell on the long lists of the do's and the don'ts, the law that was a shackle around people's necks in that time because we have given ourselves over to be led by the Spirit, no longer led by the law. Here Paul states that in Christ, sin no longer has dominion over us. And in Galatians, Paul says, we died to sin. It's, we're dead to it. It's no longer a part of who we are. And here he goes on to say, we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. So Paul's talking about, you know, there's a lot of freedom from those things that Jonathan Edwards would like to make us feel like is holding us down and holding us back. Paul says, no, that stuff no longer has control over you. And what Paul is trying to convey to us is that while the, the world wants us to believe that our nature is one of sinfulness, Paul said that our very nature has been transformed into one of righteousness. And this is ultimately what I'm getting at today. There are many who feel that we must be persuaded, cajoled, or even forced into goodness. But I think just the opposite. That we are, in general, bent toward righteousness. That our instincts are most often not toward evil, but toward good. Truly malicious or evil people are few and far between. I'm not saying they're not out there. But something has gone wrong, right? I, I look at that and I think, well, here's someone 
for whom something has gone wrong. And it's not, you know, I think it's harder to just label good, bad, evil, righteous. Most often what people would point to as sin are those things that we do to try and find our own fulfillment and wholeness. And what Paul is saying here, and what I'm saying here, is that that's Jesus' job. And sometimes we kick Jesus out of that role and we replace it with someone, something else. When we try to fill our emptiness, or we try to numb our pain, or we try to get away from our troubles through actions that only make things worse, we have replaced Christ with a lesser idol. And we have taken God's role away. Furthermore, we have denied God's claim over our lives for the kingdom of God. And we have become self-focused. It is God, through Christ, who wants to fill that emptiness in your life. It is God, through Christ, who wants to help you move through the pain. Not just numb it, but move through it and come to joy. It is God, through Christ, who wants to point you toward fulfillment and wholeness and your better self. And so as we prepare for Lent, and this time of turning away from those harmful things and turning toward God, I encourage each of us to allow that Spirit to examine us. And it's not, you know... I suppose this is what kind of made me think of this. We're going to get up and we're going to party and it's going to feel like Mardi Gras in every way except for a hurricane in our hand. And, you know, even if we did have a hurricane in our hand, that isn't what makes us good or bad. And you know what? Come Wednesday, you're going to come here and you're going to go to, you're going to get the ashes on your head perhaps and you're going to start to repent and you're going to start, you're going to do 40 days of doing really well. And doing really good stuff and really, you know, trying to get your stuff in order. And you know what? That doesn't make you good either. <laughs> I mean, it's a move in the right direction. And I guess what I'm saying is that at the end of the day, our sinfulness and our righteousness really depends on allowing God to just be in our life and turning to God when we're looking for direction. And allowing God to be the one that transforms us. We can't do it on our own. I've tried. You've tried. I'm a miserable failure at it. It's only when I say, you know what, God? I'm just, I just want to follow you. I just want to help me out. Help me find my way. God says, relax, Curtis. We're going to find our way together. And it's going to be okay. And so, as we prepare for Lent, as we get ready for this thing, I am encouraged by Paul's note to us to not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies, to make you obey their passions, no longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Let us pray. 
Our gracious and loving God, it is indeed good to examine ourselves and, and to wonder about our actions and to, and to remind ourselves that we are followers of the way and that our life is not our own, but that we have given it over to You and to becoming that which You created us to be. We ask though, as we engage in this journey, that it not be one based on shame, that it not be one based on guilt, but one based on love. Love that has come from no place other than Your own Holy Spirit. And love which transforms this world. And love that is lavished on us by You. And a love that we have come to have for You and all that You have done for us. As we approach Lent, and we come to this celebration, in both instances, we invite Your Holy Spirit to be in our hearts, in our joy, in our laughter, and in our solemnness and our prayers. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.